Hansen, and welcome to today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. So today, we're talking about independent assessments and personalised budgets, with our very, very special guest, Martin Hoffman, the CEO of the NBAA. Now, before you send me hate mail saying that I'm too soft and should have given him a harder time, well, please understand that I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we can't sit down and have a civilised conversation. And that's what I've tried to do. We also talked about the very embarrassing fact that there's hardly any disabled people on the NBIA board. They really need to sort that one out. So take a look. Hi, Martin. Thanks for joining us. George, great to be with you. Been looking forward to this. Absolutely. Same, same. So you're the CEO of the NBIA. I am. I've been doing that since uh, November 2019, so uh, a bit over a year and a half now. What's it like being the CEO of uh, such an important part of Australian society now? It is, and uh, you know that was the that is the motivation uh, really for wanting to do the job and uh, and doing the job as best as I can. Uh, look, it's certainly a big job and it's a tough job, uh, but more importantly, it's an important job, and uh, we really are trying to do something at scale here uh, across Australia that hasn't been done before. We're trying to do do sort of two things. At the one hand, something really big, half a million participants, a lot of money, and we'll speak about that perhaps a bit later, but right across Australia from top to bottom, east to west. But then also we're trying to do something which is really small, which is about each individual participant, each individual person, uh, getting a getting supports for them to live their best possible life and trying to get that balance between something huge at scale that's efficient, uh, et cetera, while retaining that sense of individual uh, customization or indiv- just individual focus uh, is what the challenge is and what's what makes it so uh, tough, so important, so interesting, and ultimately rewarding. And how did, how did you end up in, in the role of uh, running the NDIA? I was looking at your biography, and there didn't seem to be a lot in there about um, disability in the past. What, what made you think I want to work in disability? Sure. No, I mean, that's, that's quite right, George. Uh, my background is not deep within the disability sector per se. I've had a very varied background, uh, a lot of government experience, both state and federal, and that's important because ultimately knowing how to get things done in government is an important part of the job. Uh, I've worked in the nonprofit sector in medical research, uh, and that you know has relevance in part as well. And then I've worked in big and small business, including in technology and service delivery. Uh, and large-scale operations, which is important as well. So it was really a combination of bringing all those backgrounds, all that experience to this this sector. 
Uh, and as we said, it's one of the most important things that uh, Australia is doing. It's one of the biggest social reforms since uh, since Medicare, as people say. Uh, and having the opportunity to bring my skills to it to really make that difference, as I said, on the large scale and on the personal scale, uh, was something I really wanted to really wanted to do. And it isn't that making a difference. And the NDIS has made a difference to millions, not millions, sorry. Well, millions hundreds of thousands. If you count families, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that um, we often underestimate the 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 phone effects of um, supporting people with disability. I'm really glad that you mentioned that it, that it does affect, you know, the whole country. And I, and I think that um, that we need to talk that up um, more than we than we actually do. Um, so you're, you know, when you think about being in that role where it has such an um, important impact on transforming um, people's lives, does it get overwhelming sometimes? <laughs> oh, look. I think um, uh, there's certainly, to be honest, George, there's certainly an emotional load uh, and that sense of responsibility that that comes uh, with with the job, absolutely. And one of the things I try and do is stay uh, connected in the sense of uh, spending some time of uh, my day at the very least uh, every day, uh, reading uh, emails or letters uh, directly from participants, which might be good, might be bad, uh, but just trying to stay connected in that that sense. And I think you have to do that, or else you do just focus too much on the large scale and forget the personal scale. But that's that, that's hard, uh, yes. And as you know, as we'll talk about, it's particularly hard right now. I think where. There is uh, some real concern about uh, the direction of the scheme, the sort of uh, changes and reforms that are being proposed, uh, and that that adds to to the load. But, you know, I don't complain about that. That's uh, part of the job. Uh, I get a lot of rewards, you know, from doing the job. And, uh, you know, I sort of fully understand that that's, uh, that's the way it works. All right, well, let's get into talking about some of those reforms. I'm really um, interested in you know, hearing your your perspective. I, I feel like we've spent a lot of time in the last 12 months just yelling at one another in, in, in this space. And what I mean by that is, you know, the sector telling you that you're not doing, you know, the right thing. And then, you know, we had a little bit of radio silence and the NDIA there for a while when it came to what these reforms were actually about. But it does feel like there's been a bit of a shift and there is more information coming out. But what I would like to really get um, uh, to ask you is why are we we here? How did we end up um, in a place where there's so much angst um, in the community, I mean, I have my own uh, perspectives and I've written about this, but can you tell us why you think we've um, gotten into a bit of a messy place when it comes to uh, 
the, the dialogue between the community and the NBI. Sure. So I I think uh, I think it's fundamentally because the NDIS is so important that people care so much about it. It is central to uh, your life and hundreds of thousands and millions of families' uh, lives. Uh, it was fought for. It was a great dream uh, that it w- could happen going back uh, over a decade now. Uh, and so people feel a real sense of its importance, of ownership of it, of concern about it. And uh, when uh, there is um, discussion about you know, how it can continue to evolve and change and improve, uh, not surprisingly, uh, that attracts a lot of um, att- attention. Now, you know, I've said publicly, and I'll say it again with you, you here, um, clearly... Uh, the level of concern, you know, uh, fear is something we would never have wanted to see. My team work in extraordinarily hard and really care uh, and feel deeply about uh, where th- things are. You know, many of our staff are people with disability themselves. Certainly many, many are uh, carers, parents of people with disability are actively involved in the scheme. So uh, they're not just some sort of faceless bureaucracy. Uh, They're really part of their communities spread right across Australia, and they care about uh, the way the scheme goes as well. So although we've been, from our perspective, very genuinely uh, trying to talk about why and what we're doing, uh, clearly that hasn't been... Uh, received well enough. Uh, and as I've said, I, I deeply regret that. All we can do uh, is keep trying to do our best uh, and trying to do things uh, in a different way. And I think, as you acknowledged, uh, over the last couple of months uh, with Minister Reynolds, uh, we may have been starting to do, do just that. Yeah, I've seen it on shift. Um, in in the dialogue, and um, you know, we saw the the technical paper that came out recently um, on personalised budgets, and there was more there's more information in there, which was really helpful. Um, one thing that I, I think people want to know is um, how how are these um, personalised budgets going to work in a way that won't uh, disadvantage people and what I mean by that is there's concern that that um that through the process of a, a very short um assessment of by you know people that don't necessarily know the person that that there'll be a an allocation of funding that might not reflect the person's needs. And you know, we heard um Professor Vanahey refer to the uh the suggest the proposed changes as a as a form of robo planning. Um what what do you have to say when you hear people refer to um what you're planning as as, as robo planning? Well look um on that term that's not a term that I'd use at all and I don't think it's it's right uh and I don't think it's helpful. Um let me talk about what uh we're actually trying to do here. Um because let's not forget as well that many people 
uh, would say that the current way planning works is not working particularly well either. And I would agree with that. Just think about what's happening now. Um, we are increasingly building an ever more complex rule book of what we will fund and what we won't fund and when we'll fund it and when we won't. And, you know, can you have carers on Sundays or not and how many hours and what will those carers do? And do we fund dance lessons or not? Do we fund singing lessons or not? Do we fund thermomix appliances or, or not? Uh, and so on and so on. And each of those decisions is something being made by one of my, my staff. And so each plan has come down to hundreds of decisions, yes, no decisions, ever more complex rules uh, being decided by a public servant. And that's not choice and control. It's not the way the scheme was meant to be. It's not uh, personal budgeting or turning the funding around from going to the provider to going to the uh, participant. It's requiring, it's making planning into begging and bargaining on a line-by-line -line basis and us trying to make decisions, as I said, about hundreds of different uh, issues that people want or think they need, et cetera, or, or need uh, in a way that's very hard to do efficiently, uh, quickly, consistently across Australia and so on. So what we're really trying to do here is three things. We're trying to have a scheme that gives the right amount of money overall to each participant. So that's our fundamental task as, the, as an insurance agency, to decide and agree the right amount of money for each participant. And then having set that, to allow the participant to, to the greatest extent possible, make their own decisions about how they use it because they are the experts in their own lives. So let them and their, their family, their carers make those decisions. So a much less uh, extensive rule book uh, on what we will and won't fund because we've got the overall amount right to start with. And then the third, I, I really, I'm, oh, sorry. the third thing is in order to do those two things, an overall right amount of money, flexible use of that money, we have to have consistent, reliable, free to the participant information to make those decisions. And that's where independent assessments come, come in. So that's the sort of scheme we want to deliver. I think it's a much better scheme, more in keeping with the objects and the principles and the ethos uh, of the scheme from ten, 10 years ago than the, the very complex line-by-line -line thing we've got, got now. Well, we're definitely on the same page when it comes to our flexibility and, and choice and control. And I, I, I think people are very, you know, would welcome um, the, I guess, flexibility and choice uh, with respect to their plan. Um, I also think that people would, you know, welcome a, um, a planning process that, uh, you know, doesn't involve them having to prove the need for every single item. I think that the, the current system is cumbersome. Um, I think where people sort of get concerned, though, is that, um, is that independent assessments and, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder why we use the term 
independent assessments because I, I'm, I'm not sure if, if they're necessarily independent. Um, but can you maybe help us explain, uh, help us understand um, why you chose the term independent assessments? Uh, well, really, the term goes back to what the Productivity Commission wrote in 2011, where they made reference to uh, exactly that. And they quite straightforwardly said in that report that the information that those decisions should be made on uh, should be obviously accurate and reliable, uh, but needed to be independent of the uh, participant and their um, uh, current uh, treating professionals who may have an ongoing relationship with them. So that's the, that's the concept. Uh, what's in a name? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not hung up on calling them independent assessments. As I said, what I really want is a scheme that's based upon reliable, consistent, free to the participant information uh, that we can make those uh, funding decisions on uh, so that people, participants can get on with their, their lives uh, with the minimum yeah. amount of sort of uh, NDIA bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, which is a good thing. No one wants that. Because I've been through the independent assessment process and, um, you know, what sort of struck me was, um, you know, this person that was doing the assessment, you know, was essentially being paid by the NDIA. So I'm like, are they really independent? That's that's kind of like, you know, a, a bit of an issue. Um and the other element for me was like, they didn't know me from a bar of soap. Um, and the complexity of, of my needs, very hard to, you know, capture um, via a, uh, you know, a, a stranger who hasn't had the history of knowing me. So I, I just feel like that the, there is um, a, a real benefit from having um, practitioners involved that, that know the person and that can really um, give the agency a, a, a clear understanding of what that person's needs are. And I think that might get lost in, in the, the changes. What, what do you think of that? Well, so I just go back to systems all over the world, including in Australia, where you're having to make a decision about, you know, to be upfront about it make a decision about the allocation of funds, use tools and information supplied by somebody separate to the, the person uh, who is receiving them. Uh, that's what the Productivity Commission said. Uh, it's the way a range of other compensation and insurance schemes work today across Australia and around the world. Um, now, what matters then is do we get the amount of money uh, right? And then well, that's really when planning starts and that's when people who do know your circumstances or participants' circumstances really come into, into their strength because we then start talking about, or you start talking about how best to use that money uh, for your own particular goals, your own particular life aspirations, your particular needs, etc. Uh, but we've got to have a consistent 
reliable standard way of making that that resource allocation decision that funding decision when it comes down down to it across half a million people now yeah absolutely it needs to be fair and consistent um do you think there could be a role for um practitioners who who know the person in informing the assessment process well one of the things we're doing right now uh and is through the pilot, which you mentioned, is looking at exactly these sorts of questions. The way we've done it for the pilot, as the Minister has said, won't be the way, if we go through legislation, that it's done uh, in, in the future. We'll be learning from the pilot, learning from the consultation, learning from the input from the sector, from our independent advisory council, from the state and territory disability advisory councils, from the disability representative organisations, the peak bodies, who all have ideas about how uh, an IA process can be improved. Um, and certainly one of the questions is uh, how do we best use uh, or how might we use pre-existing information that already exists about the, the, the person? Uh, as well as uh, you know, who might uh, do part or all of the assessment tools. In the end of the day, I said, I'm not hung up on the name. I'm not hung up on the IA process. I want the scheme with those three pillars of an overall funding amount, flexible use of it, and reliable, consistent information to make good decisions about what that funding amount is. Uh, and quite open to uh, refining the way we're doing it, the way we would, would do it to get that in information. Yeah, and I think the three pillars are absolutely um, yeah, on point and, and, I, and I, I'm glad that, that that's, you know, how the agency has landed. It's, the concern has really been around the, the, the uh, how we get there, right? Yeah. So the, the independent assessment process being undertaken by strangers who don't know the person, and and that and that this results in, you know, an, an allocation funding. Which, from what I understand, um, you know, the 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 assessment itself, um, if it goes wrong, it can't be appealed. Is that right? No, I mean this is a re really important point, uh, George, and uh, thanks for raising it. Um, so two, two points to make here. Firstly, uh, where that information is used for an access decision or for the planning decision, you know, the budget decision, that decision, the, the planning decision, is absolutely still reviewable and appealable if the person thinks it's wrong. Absolutely. Where we get... Now, that's the first point. Where the decision, where the IA is used for a decision about planning, that planning decision is absolutely still reviewable and appealable. The second point is really about, well, even before you get to the planning decision, how do we make sure the IA itself is giving good information, is giving that reliable and consistent information that I said I, you know, we really, really need? And that's where I think Again, out of the pilot, out of the consultation, we do need to think about ways to uh, have checks and safeguards 
that that information is accurate, is giving a fair picture uh, of the person, uh, of their needs, uh, of their capabilities, and then we go and use it for the decisions that we need to make. So, uh, yes, we need to make sure there is a chance to get the information right at the start um, and some form of review, some form of check or safeguard on that. And that's something you know, we're working on with the pilot and with the consultation. And then secondly, when it comes to an actual government decision about access or about planning and funding, those decisions have got to be and, and will be and are reviewable and then, if necessary, appealable as well. I, I think that's a good thing that the, 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 um, the funding allocation will be appealable. What does concern me, for example, is, you know, there, there could be an assessor who's really, uh, you know, n not appropriately uh, applying the, the assessment and uh, you know, does not deliver the kind of assessment that, that the person, you know, deserves. That process, I feel like, there needs to be a way for that person to say, yeah, this happened and I, I need that fixed yeah. or I need this assessment to be, to be done again because, yeah, that assessment will be on that person's file, you know, for the entirety mm. of their lives. So that, that, that is a concern. So I think, again, um, as I've said, we've got to make sure that there are checks and safeguards to get that quality, consistent, reliable information I spoke about. Um, and uh, there's a range of ways we can do that, um, including in terms of uh, the training and control and oversight of uh, the people doing the assessment. I think, don't forget, we've got a system now uh, where we get um, a whole range of information, uh, often in, inconsistent, often from uh, you know, a range of different people uh, and that information is being used today, of course, to make uh, funding and planning decisions. Uh, and we know that there is at times a lack of quality in those decisions, a lot of variation and inconsistency. Uh, and so uh, having a consistent standard set of information uh, to make those decisions uh, is intended to improve just that, just that point that you're, you're making, George. And how do we make sure that these assessors are appropriately qualified for the person that they're assessing? Well, they've got to be qualified uh, as a um, you know clinically trained allied health professional with all the professional standards uh, that come with those sorts of of roles. Uh, they've got to have had enough clinical experience, uh, and they've got to um, then go through the required training and repeat tra training in terms of the NDIA and the, the scheme and uh, you know, everything that goes with, with that, including various uh, cultural and cohort uh, awareness. I think also um, uh, we've got to make sure that, and in fact, what I was going to say was that uh, out of the pilot, uh, and we'll be releasing you know, a very detailed uh, evaluation of the independent assessment pilot that's been running over the last six months uh, very shortly. 
And one of the findings from that is that the actual assessors um, doing those assessments have rated very, very highly in terms of their professionalism uh, um, across the board. Um, and so, you know, there's some variation there, of course, uh, and there have been some individual cases spoken about, but um, across the uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, surveys that have been done, uh, the professionalism of the assessors has come through very strongly. And, and you'd expect that because they're being done by uh, qualified, accredited allied health professionals. So when a person has a, uh, a budget, um, how will their goals influence uh, the plan? I, I'm thinking that, um, I mean, I've read your, your technical paper and it says that um, that, that goals won't have any influence on the, on the budget allocation, but I'm thinking that if someone's goal is to, you know, move out of a group home, for example, they might need um, a particular uh, funding allocation that will enable them to do that. Um, and, and, and I think that's really important. What, what do you think in terms of the, the need to fund people to um, achieve what they want to achieve? Sure. So um, this is also a very uh, important area. Um, the starting point is that goals don't drive the amount of funding. And that's true today uh, and has been true uh, fr from the start. Funding enables the pursuit of goals, but you don't get more money by putting more goals in, in the plan or, or you shouldn't. Uh, because that just becomes, you know, there's got where's the where's the the end to that. So that's always been the case, and that'll continue to be the case. Uh, more goals, bigger goals, doesn't mean more funding uh, as compared to somebody in the same uh, circumstances. But you're absolutely right. Where you're in those sort of life transitions. Uh, and moving uh, out of a, a group home or moving out of your parents' home or employment sort of, or moving from school to uh, not being at school and hopefully being employed in some, some way, um, those life transition stages absolutely uh, and your goals around that absolutely uh, lead to uh, funding implications absolutely lead to changes in fun funding. Uh, and so that that has been the case today and that doesn't change. Uh, but what we do make clear, as has been the case from the start, is that just putting more goals in the plan shouldn't and can't lead to automatically more, more funding. That's not the way the Act works today and it, and it won't be the way the Act works going forward. Yeah, and that, that, I... I... I appreciate that you would understand. I wasn't implying that that should be the way no, it no, works. Exactly. I was just thinking more about people's um, personal circumstances yeah. and 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 how they, you know, for example, if you know, Martin, if you you know end up having a disability and you know you wanted to continue living with your your family, you know that would require a certain kind of. Um, support package that might 
not reflect what someone would need if they if they live with you know three other people um, in shared living. Mm. I guess that's what I'm yeah. what I was what I was implying. Yeah. So those uh, personal circumstances and uh, life transition moments, uh, particularly around housing, around uh, education, around work, uh, are absolutely drivers to um, the funding levels. And they, and they they have to be. I think that's been really helpful in just understanding mm-hmm. a bit more of what you were, what the thinking is. And I really hope that um, the pilot will be uh, an opportunity to unpack this a bit more and understand um, what's working and what's not working. Well, once you have a budget, will there be, you said that the person can decide how they spend their, their funding. Uh, do you envisage any um, restrictions on how they can spend their funding? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things we're still uh, working through and still uh, consulting on and wanting um, input on. Um, clearly, if funding has been given for a, a very specific purpose, like supported disability accommodation, SDA, or like a uh, expensive piece of assistive technology, it needs to be spent on that and not on something else. So, you know, there's got to be those sorts of controls of those sorts of fixed amounts. Uh, within that, uh, after that, um, it shouldn't be spent on things which are um, ordinary costs of living uh, because the scheme is not set up to be an income supplement. Uh, it's set up to provide supports necessary for disability. And now, as we all know today, the dividing line between what's an ordinary cost of living and what's a disability-related support is hard and that's why we get an ever bigger rule book uh trying to work that that out uh and i want to want to get away from that so um uh that means for me there are a lot less rules about what it can be used for um and a lot less proof of what it is because if the amount of money is is right uh the person's going to use it on uh, supports that they need and for develop their capacity, etc. They're the expert in their life. They'll make those decisions. We can give support and guidance and assistance uh, if necessary, uh, either from agency staff, the LAC staff, or support coordinators. Uh, but we have we get away from a lot of this proving that each support uh, satisfies uh, Section 34, reasonable and necessary. So, from what you're saying, it's a bit of a watch this space. Well, there's a lot more flexibility. Really, the only one that I'm particularly concerned about, I mean, you can, is uh, this, you know, does it become an ordinary costs of living uh, uh, issue? Um, but if we've got the amount of money right, then, you know, you people will make the right decisions uh, as they as they need. I think that the um, self management guide, um, which was put out a couple of years ago, 
and hasn't really good principles. Yeah. You know, one of those is that it's not an ordinary um, cost and also that it's not a, something that's refunded to another part of the government. And and I think that that's, yeah, that could be easily, you know, applied to, to everyone. Exactly. Um, and self-management's a really important part of the scheme. Uh, it goes with that whole ethos of giving as much control and choice as possible to the participant. Uh, and um, so self-management's an incredibly important part of the scheme and, you know, needs to continue in just that, that way. And as you said, some of the principles around that, uh, you know, give a good guide to the way a personal budget will be used by anybody regardless of uh, plan management type. So, Martin, before we finish up, there'll be a lot of people with disabilities and families listening to this. And, you know, there, there's a lot of concern and angst in the community. What, what, what would you say to people who are, who are really concerned and uh, how would you help us feel um, like this is going to head in the right direction? Sure. No, thanks, George. It's an important point. You know, all I can do is keep communicating, you know, like this uh, and in many different ways, keep trying to assure people that the NDIA is made up of uh, almost 10,000 or over 10,000 people all over Australia. Many of them, as I said, uh participants themselves or certainly family, parents of, of participants. They care deeply about the scheme. Uh, I care deeply about the scheme and what it means for individuals and for Australia, that small-scale, large-scale point. We really do want to have a scheme that is true to that original conception uh, of uh, changing the life trajectory, the life opportunities uh, of, of participants in, in the scheme. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do. Uh, as I said, with those three things that I've spoken about a number of times, uh, we'll get the information, the way we get that information, call it IAs, call it whatever, we'll get that right. Um, and the commitment to the scheme from the agency, from the board, from the government is, is there. We do have to make sure the scheme is, is affordable. Uh, I don't want to shy away and not, not mention that. I want to be... You know, transparent and upfront. Uh, we're going to spend, we spent a lot of money this year. We're going to spend even more money next year, $26.5 billion at least. Uh, and the numbers go up after that. But they need to go up in a way that is controllable and predictable. Uh, and at the moment, or over the last three years, growing at 12.5% per year per person is simply not affordable. You, we can't have a scheme that is growing, ongoing, faster than the economy, faster than the population, faster than uh, tax receipts, uh, faster than the ability of the parliament to, to uh, the country to afford it. So having a controllable cost increase curve is what we need, need to do. And I'm quite honest and open about that. Uh, we need to have cost increases uh, that are predictable, that are controllable, that are in line with the uh, projections that the states made and their funding goes up at 4% each year. 
So that is an issue we're working on, but it's in that context, getting a controllable, predictable growth curve uh, so that the scheme is affordable for the long term. Uh, if we can do that, we can also make sure that people can use their funds in a much better way than it's been to date. We can get out of having public servants every year making line-by-line -line decisions about what can and can't be funded. Uh, and we can focus on the scheme delivering the outcomes that were wanted in terms of participation in the community, employment, engagement, and a, a different uh, life opportunity uh, than was the case before. And my last final question there. Fair enough. We've still got time. Why? Uh, yeah, maybe there's two of these. How many people with disabilities on the NDIA board? Yeah, so uh, honest answer to that is I'm not 100% sure. Uh, the And that sounds silly. What I mean is there is no one on the board with a, uh, at the moment with a visible, uh, what do you call it, a, a visible disability. There are certainly members of the board who are uh, deeply engaged as, uh, as carers uh, and have lived experience in that, that sense. We also have a number of vacancies on, on the board. And right now, the government and the minister who are responsible for the board are looking to make appointments uh, very shortly. Uh, and I'm quite sure that uh, having replacing uh, previous members who were people with disability uh, will be one of the criteria in getting a, a balanced board. Um, and so, as I said, there'll be announcements, I understand, by the government on new board members uh, shortly. And then, of course, we've also got the under the, the Act, the Independent Advisory Council, uh, which is set up uh, very deliberately to have a formal uh, role in advice to, to the board. And, of course, it, uh, it has to be comprised of people uh, with disability or with uh, direct uh, caring experience as well. It's really interesting to me. Um, you know, I've been working in this sector for a long time and um, I always find it interesting to see how poorly um, people with disabilities are represented on boards and on, on decision-making bodies. And I often think, you know, if there was a, you know, a national women's insurance agency and you had no women on it, everyone would be, you know, there'd be an outcry on that. But, um, yeah, we seem to have a long way to go. And in the disability sector, we say nothing about us without us. And I think that needs to apply in, uh, you know, in, in boards and, and governance. Sure. No, and I would agree with you uh, com completely there. As I said, uh, we've currently got vacancies on the board and the government's actively considering uh, the appointments of uh, new directors uh, now. Uh, and, I, and I know that's one of the, the factors uh, that, that has to be got right. As I said, it's not, it's not, it's not the agencies or even the current board members' decision. Uh, that is a, a matter for, for government to make. Uh, they, they appoint the board under the act. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the conversation, Mark. I feel like we, uh, we, we really need to make sure that we do uh, uh, continue to 
to talk um, that that we understand each other and that we understand that you know what what what's planned by the agency and that people disabilities can uh, can hear directly from you about what you're thinking and I think this has been an opportunity to do that so I really appreciate your time. Mark. No, thanks, George. Uh, I've enjoyed it too, uh, and uh, agree with you there. Uh, Myself and the whole team are working incredibly hard, are trying to do our best uh, in this, trying to get the scheme, uh, as, as I've spoken about today, got to do it uh, with uh, the community. We know that. Uh, we're going to keep trying to do that as best we can. Uh, we've got a way forward. Um, still a long way to go. Uh, you know, Not everybody will necessarily agree with everything, uh, but we've got to keep uh, trying and in doing that, as you've just said, keep the lines of communication open. Uh, so I'll be very happy to you know come back and do another one of these if you want to have me. I'd love to have you. Thanks for your time, Matt. Okay, that's great. Thanks, George. Bye now. Bye. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for watching, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.